Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. It is Monday, the 8th day of April 2019. We're going to get right into business today. And we're going to start by talking about four items that we think you should be aware of when it comes to the Standard Poor's 500 and how it has performed in 2018, 2019. And you can connect some dots with me. But before we do that, we're going to run through our quick 60-second disclaimer. Be right back. Connecting Dots is a production of Fixed Cost Financial, the home of fixed cost investing. All rights reserved. Rebroadcast or distribution prohibited without expressed written authorization. Connecting Dots is for educational use only. Investment performance is not guaranteed. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This broadcast does not take into account your particular investment objectives, financial situation or needs. Nothing should be construed as an individual recommendation. Always read and all applicable information carefully before making an investment decision. Investments are not bank guaranteed, not FDIC insured, and may lose value. Due to our extensive holdings and that of our clients, you should assume that we have a position in all companies discussed and thus a conflict of interest should be assumed. Number one. Okay, so the Standard & Poor's 500 is an index and is comprised of 500 companies, right? And last year, 2018 in the fourth quarter, things didn't turn out quite so well and a lot of people lost a lot of money in October, November, and December the total return was a negative 13.5%. You got that? It was a negative 13.5%. But, 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 here's the big but. Are you ready for this one? In 2019, the first quarter would be January, February, and what? March. So now we're into April. We've had some time to look at what happened, and guess what? The first quarter is up 13.6%. Oh. So you had 13.5 down last quarter of 2018, 13.6% up in 2019. You know, in the last 50 years, this has only happened on six or five other times. I believe this happens to be the sixth time that this has actually happened, where you had a double-digit loss in one quarter, followed by a double-digit gain in the following quarter. Now, is in other podcasts, okay, in a, in a different episode, we talked about Dalbar and the research that they did on investors and how they performed in 2018. The average investor didn't do so good because the average investor lost about twice as much as the Standard & Poor's 500, and that's simply due to people who have knee-jerk reactions, who look at recency, the recent events, this is a recent, they call it recency bias, and they don't look at the long-term, and they pull money out of long-term holdings because of what's going on in the short-term. You don't want to do that. Number two. Now, the 13 largest stocks in the S&P 500, they make up 25% of the total market capitalization of the index. Now, we did these numbers, and it goes back uh, fri around Friday of uh, the fifth day of uh, this month. We looked at it, and so what you have here, 
3%, that's right, 3% of the 500 largest companies in the S&P 500, okay, the, the 13 largest, they only represent 3% of the stocks, but yet they represent 25% of the capitalization of the index. Now, the S&P is capitalization weighted. And if you know what we do, we are big into equal weighting, selecting based upon the capitalization and doing equal weighting. Uh, to the, later to this morning, I'll be meeting with somebody. Uh, they may be a new client to the firm. They may not be. I don't oftentimes have an opportunity to have somebody come into my office. And I'll be telling them that. The problem is most people do not, I believe, understand how the stock market works in terms of an index. What is an index? Who puts the companies in? How are they selected? So they're selected a lot of times on capitalization. And then what we do is when it comes to the asset allocation, that's important, the asset allocation is based upon equal weighting. Number three. Now, April is a very special month when it comes to investing. So too is November. Why would that be? Because... April and November are traditionally the best months to be in the S&P 500. So if we go back and look from 1994 until 2018, you'll see that April has gained an almost 2% return in the month, okay? 1.92 to be exact. The other month, November, is 1.81%. So if you look and say, okay, I'm going to get in, in in April, get out of the market, get in in November and get out, you might have a nice little steady 4% return, although that's not what the performance is of the entire market. Obviously, it's done a lot better. But right now, if you're not in, you're potentially losing, based upon historical returns, um, a pretty substantial opportunity. Number four. So number four, I want to talk a little bit about the companies in the S&P 500, and what are they doing with their cash? Because there's a lot of cash out there. I mean, there's a boatload of cash. Well, about $800 billion, B billion, was used to buy stock back in 2018. This quite literally shatters. I mean, it shatters the record from 2007, which was at 589 billion dollars. So the bottom line is we have got a lot of companies that are using their cash to buy back stock. And we could go, well, I could go on for hours about the stock market and what stock buybacks are doing. And again, the difference between institutional and retail investors. And we'll do that next. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about the importance of having individual stock. But again, a lot of people don't understand the importance of having a vibrant stock market, and having enough stock to buy. Number five. So let's talk a little bit about institutional and retail ownership. Now, these facts and figures are a little frightening to be very blunt with you because 70% of all stock is owned by institutional investors. 70%. Now, it declined from 2017, which it was at 71. So a 1% decline is one thing. And where did that 1% go? It went to 
retail investors, normal everyday people like you and I. I got to tell you, though, when people say, oh, yeah, I'm in the stock market. When I ask, well, what stocks do you own? Well, I own mutual funds and ETFs. No, go through that. When I ask them what mutual funds they have, what do they actually, what stocks do they actually own? Most people don't know. It's a rare bird that owns individual stock and does it themselves. You can say what you want, but retail investors, yeah, you do realize that when you do not own stock in the company, you do not have a chance to vote on the shares because they're owned by the institution, not you. Oh, you can vote for the mutual fund shares, but you can't vote for the stock, which I think is a pretty big, important item. Institutional shareholders vote their shares. I do mine, for example, 91% of the time because I retain the voting for my clients in our, in our holdings. Now, a client can do that if they want, but we just don't have anybody that does. I vote the shares as an institutional investor. And, um, but the bottom line is, what do retail investors do? Well, they drop down to 28%. In fact, in 2017, they were at 29%. Now they're at 28%. Guys, you can complain all you want, but if you don't vote, you're not going to get anything close to resembling what you want. On average, uh, shareholder support for boards of directors, 96%. So that means basically all of your institutions have to be voting and the overwhelming majority of the retail investors, you guys, us, uh, you do realize, realize that I generally vote no overwhelmingly for the board of directors, for the CEO, and for the companies when they have these compensation packages. A lot of people do not want to allow shareholders to have a say in compensation, but when they do, I do a very simple mathematical calculation using resources I have online. And if I feel that executives are being overpaid, I vote no. No ifs, no ands, no buts about it. Oh. I think, frankly, that a lot of these people who are in the world of uh, corporate bureaucracy and uh, public companies, I think what they're doing to share prices is an absolute joke. Now, many companies are making it uh, mandatory uh, more and more that CEOs in their pay ratio, they have to have a disclosure. In other words, compare the total compensation of the chief executive officer to the median employee. And support for this, again, which we, we would call say on pay because we don't get to vote. It's just say. You got to say in it. Um, you got to see at the table. The proposals have remained about 89%, pretty consistent over the last five years. And so the bottom line there is we're beginning to see a few more companies that are beginning to disclose uh, what they're paying their CEOs or, you know, they're getting some, some uh, feedback from us, but some are really fighting it uh, tooth and nail. Okay, speaking of horses, uh, the California Public Employees Retirement System, it's known as CalPERS, and I've studied CalPERS thoroughly since 1986. They actually reported that with over 500 companies that they have a position in, um, they voted against the board of directors. And so they withheld 271 votes for board of directors on 85 different companies because of a lack of diversity. Now, a lack of diversity. I want to talk a little bit about that. I want you to always remember, never forget that one of the things I look for in boards of directors is not diversity. In fact, I actually could never tell you the race or sex of a person. I mean, their name sometimes, you know, 
Pat Smith. Is that a boy? Is that a girl? Is that a combination? I don't know and don't care. What I'm looking for is people who have capabilities, who are well-rounded backgrounds. And I don't believe in stuffing a board of directors with people who potentially are qualified only, again, only because of their um, race. I mean, I, I don't get that at all. You may not like it, but that's what I do. I don't believe in giving a promotion to someone who has not earned it. And yes, you have to have diversity for good, um, for, for all the right reasons. But when it comes right down to it, that is also something that can cause a real roadblock in some companies. Just remember that because the bottom line is simply this. It can always backfire when you begin to put people in a position where they're really not suited. That's a big deal. Okay, next. Overall support of corporate political spending. This thing really burns me up. I really think this is full of <laughs> corporate political spending. Support for that has increased to 28% from 20% since 2014. So look, when it comes to retail investors, uh, the support's not there. Retail investors, um, it's like 8%, okay? Huge difference. Now, when you have money and you can give money as a way of a dividend back to the, back to the shareholder, do you do that? Do you want that? Or do you want the company spending money on political activity? I don't know about you, but I'm like Jerry Maguire in that scene, show me the money. I find this entirely unacceptable. And so as a result, you should too. And when you see things like that, that's why we vote no a lot. Well, before we get out of here today, I want you to know that uh, according to Prudential, we're going to wrap with this Prudential American Worker Survey. Again, this is something that I always talk about. 53% of the 2,200 American workers that were surveyed. Now, remember, we don't know the demographics of that survey, but they did it in February of last, just last month. Said they would not work for an employer who did not offer some form of retirement plan. You do realize the overwhelming majority of the retirement plans are defined contribution, which you've got to put your money in yourself. They may match, they may not. 68% of this group express concerns that they may come up short in their efforts to accumulate funds for a comfortable retirement. I want you to always remember, never forget, if you are not financially independent, I can give you the solution right this minute. Number one, make more. Number two, Spend less. Number three, adjust your expectations. Number four, do a combination of number one, two, or three in whatever combination you want. But that's all there is to it. All of these financial planning nonsense people out there. Guys, if you're not making it, you got to make more, spend less, or adjust your expectations. It's never more difficult than that. And again, you got an awful lot of people who said they're probably going to come up short. That's kind of sad, but it is what it is. Hey, then again, this real quick short one for everybody here at Fixed Cost Financial. Thank you for your time and consideration. We're going to roll out of here and we're done, I think. Are we done? 
Okay, that's a wrap for this episode. If you have a comment or an idea, call 888-629-7864. That's 888-629-7864 and leave a message. We truly appreciate your ideas and comments. Thank you for joining us today. This podcast was produced by Fixed Cost Financial, the home of fixed cost investing. Fixed Cost Financial is a true fiduciary-based investment advisor, where you will not pay more, if you have more, or receive less, if you have less. The way we do it, as a true fiduciary, it's better, it's simple, and it works. You can find Fixed Cost Financial online at FixedCostInvesting.com, that's FixedCostInvesting.com. 